0: Today, here in Sharm el-Sheikh, we established the first ever dedicated fund for loss and damage. A fund that has been so long in the making.
1: Welcome to today's Jolt. It's the 23rd of October. I'm Sam Morgan, your host. Later in the episode, we'll be looking at why United Nations talks on setting up a new fund to deal with climate-triggered losses and damages collapsed this weekend, ahead of a crucial summit in November. First, let's take a look at the major energy and climate stories making waves around the world. Australia very nearly got all of its electricity from renewable sources during one half-hour period in September, according to a new report. For about 30 minutes on a Saturday last month, the Eastern Australia Electricity Grid, which supplies most of the major cities and populated areas, was supplied almost exclusively by green generation. Just 1.4% of demand needed to be satisfied by fossil fuels, which is a record. Renewables, in general, met 70% of demand for the wider electricity market, which includes the west coast and northern settlements. Those figures may not sound that impressive, especially to those of you in Europe, where many countries frequently achieve the 100% feat during windy and sunny days, but it is a very notable milestone, given Australia's reliance on coal and gas. Swiss voters headed to the polls this week and decided to back the ruling right-wing People's Party, which increased its share of the vote to a record level, very nearly hitting 30% of votes counted. Although the election was very much migration-focused, the People's Party has pledged to cap Switzerland's 8 million strong population at 10 million, It does have climate ramifications. The green share of the vote was cut, and pollsters say that the next government will be unlikely to feel any pressure to prioritise sustainability issues. Reto Foelmi, an economics professor at the University of St. Gallen, told The Guardian that on climate change, the government and the parliament will take the foot off the gas. Singapore has not made any decisions about using nuclear power, but is keeping all of its options open, according to industry minister Gan Kim Yong. Last year, a government report pinpointed atomic power as one possible way for the island city-state to meet its decarbonisation objectives. Minister Gan said that the government is boosting its capacities when it comes to nuclear safety and preparedness. A study from a decade ago had concluded that nuclear technologies at the time were not suitable for deployment in Singapore, but there has been renewed interest in small modular reactors. Argentina's search for a new president continues. Candidates failed to secure enough votes in the first round this weekend, triggering a second late next month. Far-right libertarian hopeful Javier Millet, the initial favourite, only placed second behind left-wing counterpart Sergio Massa. Millet wants to completely change how Argentina's government does things, with his plans including shutting several ministries, abandoning the peso for the US dollar, and appointing the scientist who cloned his favourite dog as a top science advisor. On energy, he reportedly will scrap Argentina's convoluted system of price controls and subsidies for the power sector, cancel domestic oil refiner's right to block crude exports, and push back on laws that incentivize LNG exports. Millay is also a climate change denier, saying it is just a lie of socialism. A second round vote is pencilled in for the 19th of November. European Union policymakers are reportedly considering setting up yet another emissions trading system, with this new one specifically designed for the farming sector. The EU's main ETS has been operation for more than a decade, and covers power generation, heavy industry, some aviation and, most recently, shipping. A second mini-ETS for buildings and road transport will fire up in a couple of years. Long muted but always too politically difficult to push through, agriculture's inclusion in a carbon market is starting to feature in policy debates again, according to political Europe. There are many complex hurdles to overcome, beyond the challenging political situation. Agriculture emissions are predominantly non-CO2, and the likes of methane and nitrogen oxide are rather more difficult to gauge than carbon dioxide. Other issues like exemptions and who actually would pay for pollution permits would also have to be worked out. This is a long-term issue, but it is one worth following. Tomorrow, the European Commission, that's the EU's executive branch, is supposed to publish a stocktake of the Union's efforts to reach climate neutrality by 2050. The report is the first of its kind and is a legal requirement of the climate law, the landmark legislation that governs the EU's long-term green transition. The Commission has released shorter-term analysis of progress towards goals before, but this is the first time it is considered where the Union stands on its flagship objective. Fossil fuels should be phased out by 2040, according to a coalition of more than 100 international companies, representing more than $1 trillion in annual revenue. Firms including Volvo, Vodafone, Heineken, Unilever, Bayer, Orsted, Ikea, eBay and Iberdrola lent their signatures to the open letter, which calls on government leaders to set clear targets and timelines that govern the phase-out of unabated fossil fuels. You may remember that unabated buzzword from an episode of the Jolt last week, so do check it out if you missed it. That's all of your news updates for today. Now, let's move on to a closer look at the story of the moment. Last year, at the COP27 climate summit in Egypt, one of the main victories to come out of the meeting was a deal on a new fund to help people that have suffered losses and damages caused by climate change. It was specifically aimed at developing countries. Delegates were meant to hammer out the nitty-gritty details of how the fund will actually work before the next edition of COP, which is due to start at the end of November in Dubai. This weekend, though, talks collapsed and the fund risks languishing in limbo if negotiators are not able to broker a compromise in time. This is very bad news for climate action efforts. Farmers that have lost crops because of drought or families left homeless due to flooding are just two of the many applications for such a loss and damage fund. Climate change-related extreme weather events are becoming more regular, and the need for financing to help people recover from them is becoming more and more essential. The effects of climate change are also most significantly felt by populations in developing countries. Countries, remember, that bear very little responsibility for historical or even current emission levels. So a multi-billion dollar fund designed to rebalance an extremely unfair situation was, as you heard at the top of the show from Egyptian Foreign Affairs Minister Sameh Shaukri, Long overdue. It had been on the agenda ever since the Paris Agreement was struck, all the way back in 2015. Following the breakthrough in Sharm el Sheikh last year, the idea was to work out all the details and hand over a fully fleshed out proposal for delegates to sign off at COP28 in just over a month. That timing risks serious failure now after talks in the Egyptian city of Aswan collapsed this weekend. There will be another round of negotiations in the first week of November to try and break the deadlock and go to COP with that deal in hand, but the chances of that happening do not look great. So why has this good idea that is sorely needed causing such difficulties? Let's take a look. One of the major reasons a deal has remained out of reach is that countries have been unable to agree on who should run it. The United States is pushing for the loss and damage billions to be managed by the World Bank, a US-based and US-run financial institution. That has stoked controversy, as developing nations want the fund to be independent, and there have also been accusations that the World Bank could not be fully focused on the main mission of the fund, namely helping the needy and most vulnerable in society, because it has a duty to its shareholders. Advocates of the idea have insisted that the fund would be up and running quicker if it is housed in an already established institution. They've also pointed to the fact that the current head of the bank is A.J. Banga, an Indian-born American business executive whose background would make him more sympathetic towards the objectives of the fund. Cuba's ambassador to the United Nations, Pedro Pedroza Cuesta, explained during a press conference just before the talks collapsed why he and his colleagues have argued against the World Bank
0: proposal. At this late hour, a small group of nations responsible for the most significant proportion of a stock of greenhouse gases have tried to regain potential support for a fund on one side with eligibility and administrative arrangements that would impede its ability to respond directly, for instance, to recent climate-related tragedies in Pakistan and Libya and an explicit withdrawal from their differentiated responsibilities and commitments under the COP and CMA. We must ensure that the administrative arrangement of the fund do not impede direct access to all developing countries particularly vulnerable to climate change, preclude the fund from accepting broad sources of finance, including philanthropy, or leveraging its resources on the capital markets. The urgency of the hour suggests it should also consider entering administrative arrangements.
1: You can see why developing nations would be skeptical. The US does have a habit of underdelivering on pledges, especially climate financing. President Joe Biden has been unable to convince Republican lawmakers to unlock more than $10 billion in additional international green finance, and out of $3 billion pledged by Barack Obama for the Green Climate Fund back in 2014, only $2 billion has been provided let us not forget the fact that Americans will vote for a new president next year, and Biden is by no means guaranteed to defeat Donald Trump, his probable opponent in that race. The prospect of a second Trump presidency, and the chance that his administration would tear apart a World Bank-hosted fund, can obviously not be discounted. But Ambassador Cuesta was also adamant in his remarks that there is an easy solution to the current problem
0: there is a clear pathway to operationalizing the funding. Its scope, eligibility, independence, and operation are straightforward. It needs to be able to provide direct support in the form of largely grant-based finance to developing countries particularly vulnerable to the adverse consequences of climate change, to help them reconstruct and rehabilitate, including addressing relocation, lost livelihoods, and non-economic losses after extreme weather and significant slow-onset events. To get a bit more insight into what went down in these talks,
1: I was fortunate enough to talk with Lean Van Dam from the Centre for International Environmental Law, who was in Egypt for the talks. Apologies for the slightly ropey audio quality during some parts of the discussion, but I do think the content more than makes up for it. To what extent was the issue of the World Bank's involvement in the loss and damage talks the main block in these talks and the reason why they've collapsed for the time being? How big an issue is this?
2: Um, It it definitely has been a major obstacle for progress and and one of the the main blocks or maybe even the main block Um, because at the start of the meeting um, many reasons were put forward by developing countries um, that have also already been um, put forward by civil society about why the World Bank is not fit for purpose um, as a host for the loss and damage fund. Um, We're talking about the inability of the World Bank to provide direct access um, for countries but also for communities Um, the potential impact this would have on on the policies of the fund and the governance um, of the fund Um, so many questions were raised um, and despite that um, the U.S. and other developed countries kept holding on to this proposal um, as the only way forward Um, the a lot of energy went into desperately trying to find ways to convince developing countries that um, these you know these questions or these these um, concerns could be um, could be addressed by the World Bank, and that that raises questions about the fact, um, like if if you put the World Bank forward that that proposal as as a reason or a, or, or the argument behind it, sorry, would be that it is because it needs to be uh, speedy, uh, which is one of the things that developed countries have kept saying that you know they want to set it up as soon as possible, and that's why the World Bank um, is a good idea. But if you then see that you know all of the loops that that they would have to jump to, um, all of the um, changes in policies that it would require the terms of references that would have to be developed um, with the board of the fund. It does raise questions uh, about this this argument of speed and whether it's it's even faster to set this up than to to build a fund from scratch and build it in a way that is actually um, going to bring justice to communities um, because that's what it's uh, what it's meant to do.
1: In terms of the other issues and factors that the committee you were having to work through, was there any progress on issues like, who should qualify for payments from the fund or you know definitions of what qualifies as vulnerable uh, was there any progress there
2: yeah so this this was definitely also uh, still a major issue of contention so that's that's why i said the world bank issue is not the only one um their um developed country uh, claim countries claim that they want to focus on the most vulnerable um and and see that as an approach of focusing on the most most vulnerable countries um, and so limiting access to certain groups of countries. um, While developing countries uh, rightly say all developing countries are vulnerable and should have access to the fund. Um, So there on on that um, discussion or on that issue, um, what happened on the last day is that they went into breakouts um, and one of those breakouts um, was on allocation, which is not the same thing as eligibility because um, the idea would be that all developing countries would be, uh, would have access so would be eligible, but at the same time, there would be some kind of allocation framework that would be developed to ensure that those most vulnerable um, would have uh, access to the funds and, and potentially would be prioritized. So that's kind of where the discussions went. Um, so at the last day, a lot of those discussions happened behind closed doors. So it was difficult for us to assess what was happening and what was being discussed. But the discussions um, went forward on the basis of two proposals that were um, in the the text um, published by the co-chairs at the start of the day. To end when um, there was this conclusion that there wouldn't be an outcome and that there would be an additional meeting, a lot of countries asked for progress that was made during the final day to be captured in some sort of new text that would be published. Um, So it is, you know, it seems like at least on on that topic, some progress was made, um, but it is unclear. for people who were not in the room, what that progress um, looks like. And so it will be interesting to see uh, what will be um, in, in the new iteration of the text on that, on that topic.
1: Looking a bit further ahead, assuming that a deal of some nature will materialise at some point, it will be interesting to see what kind of project spending will be prioritised. Obviously, money to help clean up and recover after disasters will be high on the agenda, but there are also many initiatives that can help mitigate and maybe even prevent loss and damage. That includes insurance schemes that specifically target climate-linked damages, and early warning systems, which could help people evacuate or prepare for severe weather events. Both of those priorities are reportedly being pushed by the US government as part of the ongoing talks. Let's see what happens in November. Maybe, just maybe, there'll be a breakthrough. Many thanks for joining me today. I'll be back on Wednesday with another episode of The Jolt. Before I sign off, just a brief roundup on what else we've got for you at Foresight Climate and Energy. The latest episode of Energy Enablers is online. This edition looks at why research and development is a crucial cog in the energy transition. Also look out for the next episode of What Matters, which this week will look into Poland's role in everything green. You won't want to miss that one. Until next time... Thanks for being a part of the Jolt.